0: You're listening to the Million Praying Moms podcast, where we believe every mom is uniquely designed by God for His purpose, but also a part of something much bigger than she could ever be alone.
1: Authors and moms, Erin Mooring and Brooke McLaughlin... that's us. Hey, it is. We're going to help you make prayer your first and best response to the challenges of parenting. Listen in on real-life conversations with the experts about real issues parents face today and learn practical ways to focus on Christ as you seek wisdom and hope for the difficult job of raising children in today's world.
0: If you're ready to handle life with grace because you've been in the presence of God, you're in the right place.
1: Here are your hosts, Teachers, writers, speakers, moms, and lovers of all things cozy, comfortable, and coffee related, Brooke
0: and Aaron. Hey there, friends. You're listening to episode number 32 of the Million Praying Moms podcast, where each week we're talking about the real issues Christian parents face today. We are very excited to be with you in what will be the last official podcast of 2019 for us, and to have one of our very favorite guests tackling a subject that is kind of hard to talk about around the holidays, but, Maybe very important around the holidays as well.
1: So yes, what Erin said is true. This is going to be our last official podcast of the year. But if you were around a few weeks ago and heard our Thanksgiving prayer episode that aired in uh, episode number 29, you're going to love the prayers we have planned for you the weeks of Christmas and New Year's. So yes, it's our last episode of 2019, but we still have some good stuff for you. So keep tuning in. We're going to be taking some time off from recording and all of the things that go with podcasting to spend time with our families over the next few weeks. And we thought it would be the beginning of a beautiful tradition to air a prayer associated with each upcoming holiday. So look forward to those little mini episodes coming soon.
0: Yeah, those are going to be so beautiful. And I'm excited about starting that new tradition. The purpose of these holiday prayers is to give you something to be praying along with us as you go about celebrating. That's why we've provided a PDF download for each of the prayers. If you missed the Thanksgiving prayer, which can really be used all the time as a general prayer of Thanksgiving, you can visit our show notes from episode number 29 and download it right away. The Christmas prayer and the New Year's prayer will be available for download as well when they're released.
1: So you mentioned, Erin, that today's show could be considered hard to talk about this close to the holidays.
0: Yeah, today we're going to be talking about something that no one really wants to talk about, but we believe suicide has to be talked about maybe especially around the holidays, because emotions can wash over people during this time of year in such huge waves and make them choose to do things that they wouldn't otherwise. Most of us know someone who's been touched by suicide. If
1: you don't Praise God, but we're willing to bet you've been shocked and concerned about the seemingly skyrocketing numbers of our youth who are choosing suicide as an option.
0: We really believe this is something that must be talked about candidly within the Christian community. Just to make it real, the Centers for Disease Control report that suicide is the third leading cause of death behind accidents and homicide of people aged 15 to 24. Even more disturbing is the fact that suicide is the fourth leading cause of death for children between the ages of 10 and 14.
1: David Thomas is one of our show favorites, a trusted counselor and director of family counseling at Daystar Counseling in Nashville, Tennessee, the co-author of eight books, including the best-selling Wild Things, The Art of Nurturing Boys. He is a frequent guest on national television and podcasts, has been featured in publications like USA Today, and speaks across the country. He recently completed Are My Kids on Track? The 12 Emotional, Social, and Spiritual Milestones Your Child Needs to Reach, He and his wife, Connie, have a daughter, twin sons, and my personal favorite, a feisty yellow lab named Owen. When we first thought about doing this important show, he was quite literally the only person we wanted to invite to talk about it. David, welcome back to the show.
2: Thank you. It is an honor to spend time with you both anytime I get that opportunity.
1: Thank you. So, Tell us a little bit more about yourself, your family, and what it is you do on a daily basis.
2: So I am a family therapist. I've been practicing for almost 25 years now. And I'm actually sitting in my office as we speak, where I work with the pediatric population. Our, our counseling center serves just children, adolescents, and their families. And we do that in a really different way. We're in a house rather than an office. And the approach we take to the work is very relational. And so you mentioned the dogs, my ICL lab is actually laying in the floor right now, taking a nap. He may get a little feisty, though. He may want to be a part of this podcast at some point. We'll see. That's okay. You but, know, that's welcome here. <laughs> but that is a, a snapshot, a reflection of how we approach the work in a, a very different way. Because if if anyone listening has ever taken a child you love to counseling or a teenager you love to counseling, you know that it can be a scary, overwhelming experience. I think it can be for us as adults. So we try to create a space and an experience that is as disarming as possible for the kids and families who come here. And we work with kids individually. We do a lot of group work, and then we do a lot of work with families. And then another part of the work I do is something that we call parent consultations, where I sit down with parents here in Nashville, or I have parents call from out of town, and not in a point of crisis, but just in a place of wanting to ask some questions. And so oftentimes it's a version of the question of, does this sound normal to you or should we be concerned about this? Creating a to-do list based on where that child is in that moment developmentally. And I love doing that work. It's maybe a little like a well visit at the pediatrician's office. So I love that work of that, that piece of the work I do. And then in addition to that, I've had the, the great privilege to, write some books and get to travel around the country and interact with parents and educators and just talk about different aspects of of child development. And I'm always grateful when I get a chance to talk about kids and adolescents with the two of you because I don't ever want to miss a chance, Sam. And I am a huge fan of the work that you all do. And I believe in it strongly. You have been incredibly grateful to point folks in the direction of the great work you all are doing for years and years. Just appreciate you too. and glad to get to talk with you this morning, even around a subject that's harder to talk about, but feels incredibly important to talk about.
0: Right. And so let's just get to that. Let's talk about those statistics I just read from the Centers for Disease Control. Do they match what you're seeing in your practice?
2: Unfortunately, they do. And and I think that second statistic you shared of 10 to 15-year-olds is, is still every time I hear that read aloud or am reminded of that is so jolting to me. And, and I think a part of why I am grateful, as hard as it is to talk about this topic, I am grateful to get to with you all because I think anything we can do as adults who care for kids to try and shift those numbers in some way I want to be a part of. And so I think it starts with the very thing we're doing. Let's you know talk openly and honestly about anything we can do to prevent it. And let's talk supportively about any way that we can come alongside families who are living in the reality of that. And so I- I'm just grateful that the two of you would want to have this important but hard conversation. But yes, to answer your question, it is sadly reflective of what we see in our practice and i think even more so in the work i do with boys and adolescent men because boys lead those statistics adult men lead the statistics around suicide as well and so there is something unique to my gender in terms of having this conversation that feels so important not that girls don't obviously that's reflected in the statistics as well but lead significantly um, in ways that are greatly concerning to me, and why I think the conversation 's important
1: yeah, David. I think we we all just want to take a moment and try to understand why this is happening why, why are the numbers so much larger today than they seem to be when we were growing up what 's happening in our children 's lives in the lives of teenagers and teenagers that that they would be considering suicide at the rates that they are? Not just considering it, but actually following through with it. Are things really that much worse today than they were when we were growing up?
2: It's a great question. And and I would say in response to the last part of your question, I do think it is. I think it's a harder time to be an adolescent than any other time in history. And there's certainly things that kids are facing now that are not only similar, but identical to things that we face, but there are a lot of things that are different. And mm-hmm. one of the most obvious glaring would be technology. None of us had to navigate that mm-hmm. animal and all of what comes with that. And we can talk more specifically about that, but I would say, I think it's a harder time to be a kid in an adolescent. I think it's a harder time to be a parent. And I mm-hmm. don't think parents have ever been faced by so many overwhelming concerns. And so I think Yes, to start there. And I would say, secondly, as we think about the why of that, I would certainly point my finger at technology as one of the ingredients and evidence. Think about how many stories surface on the news where we would, you know, come to find out that a child was uh, bullied through cyberbullying or was in some way um, being harmed through that means of technology in some way. And again, that that wasn't even a possibility when we were growing up that we right. could be harmed in that way. And so I think that, and then I think also the other reality that is greatly concerning to me thinking about the differences from when we were growing up to, to now is, you know, when I think about my own growing up and I think about friends of mine, I think when I was at my most frustrated, angry, Place with my parents, if I wanted to really get their attention and cue them that I was having a hard time, the most likely statement, not just I would have made, but I think most people would have made of, of my generation, would have been, I'm going to run away from home. Right. And I actually even attempted it. You know, I packed a duffel bag and <laughs> headed down the street. I think I made it about two blocks. I did I the same
0: out. thing. <laughs> yeah, okay, same thank here.
1: You. Yeah. Thank
2: you, you all. I'm not alone. <laughs> but that was the strongest thing you could to say. You all, in in the last five years of the work I do, I cannot remember a kid saying that or a parent reporting having a child say that. They don't say, I'm going to run away from home anymore. Now they say, I'm going to kill myself. Yeah. That's the strongest thing they know to say. And the fact that that language would even be familiar, the fact that that option would even be something a kid would consider. And I think it's reflective of so much of the difference in language that kids are using. I don't hear kids anymore say I feel sad. They say I feel depressed. They don't say I feel worried. They say I have anxiety. Mm -hmm. I sat. you all last week I did an assessment with a six-year-old girl. And when I meet with a family for the very first time, I was sitting down to talk with this little girl. She's sitting on my couch here in my office. And I said, tell me a little bit about why you're here today. I want to know what you and your mom and dad talked about before you came. And she crossed her legs and she looked at me. And said, I have a lot of toxic relationships.
1: (laughs) Wait, how old was she? Six. Oh, my word.
2: Yes. And I had to honestly fight laughing because I thought it was hysterical to look at her tiny little body with her legs crossed saying I have a lot of toxic relationships. But after I kind of chuckled on the inside, I felt so sad. I thought, who has used that word around? You shouldn't even know that word. Like, you should not even know. But I hear so many kids talk about toxic relationships too. And so I think all of that's reflective of the language has changed. The options have changed. And so I think that's a significant ingredient. And then I would say a third concern for me in terms of the ingredients in response to your question, why is that, you know, I don't think there's ever been a time in history where kids have access to more, you know, they have so many things at their disposal, so many opportunities, so many resources, and yet I don't think I remember a time where kids have been less resourceful. And so, you know, one of, the, one of the definitions I remember hearing when I was in graduate school was that suicide is when pain exceeds a person's resources for coping with pain. And I think that feels so true when I think about the lack of resourcefulness that I see with kids, you know, their capacity to navigate the, the hurt and the discomfort of life Um, we talk a lot about resourcefulness, like a muscle, um, resilience, like a muscle. And I think for so many kids, that muscle is as weak as I've ever seen it, which is heartbreaking for me because we all need, you know, there's so much research around the importance of kids developing grit and resilience and resourcefulness. And I'm seeing less of that. And I I think a part of it is, um, we talk in our newest book, Are My Kids on Track?, that we're so busy being kids resources that they don't have to develop resourcefulness. Mm. Yeah, And so, you know, whether it's the everyday insignificant things of I forgot my lunch and, you know, for a lot of us growing up, I didn't even bother calling home if I forgot my lunch because I knew good and well my parents weren't going to bring it to me or my forgotten sports equipment. Like it just, my mother would have said lovingly, she wouldn't have been sarcastic, but just that sounds hard. And she would have wisely known that would have helped me. The hunger piece would have helped me remember the next day or having to run laps because I didn't have my sports equipment at practice would have been a part of what mm-hmm. And I think we rob kids of those opportunities to develop resourcefulness in both insignificant and significant ways that are a part of that muscle building.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a great point. Like they need to be able to f- work through some problems on their own and we're not helping yes. them in that. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about, um, we said it's important to talk about this at the holidays. Why is it important? And when you are home for the holidays, are there signs or anytime, are there signs parents should be looking for in their children that would alert them to need for the intervention? You know, like what, why the holidays and what are we looking for?
2: I would say one of the reasons it feels important is, you know, the holidays are known to be such a time where family is at, the center of, of everything we're doing, you know, Thanksgiving meal a Christmas experience. And so we were, the three of us were talking a little earlier about, you know, the reality being that it's almost impossible in this day and age to encounter adult whose life hasn't been touched by suicide in some way, and certainly has been touched by loss. And so I think when we're in these moments of the year that are so much about family, it's going to trigger and stir a lot inside of us when we have experienced loss and certainly loss by suicide. And I think that can feel amplified as families sit around a Thanksgiving table and look at an empty chair. Um, loss does that. And and so I think it feels of great importance in this window for that reason. But I think in terms of the signs, um, you know, with, with adolescents and with adolescent boys in particular, I think it's a great importance that we think about some of the signs that aren't as obvious. So for let me start with the more obvious signs and then we'll talk about the less obvious. You know, certainly we're concerned about kids who seem sad, who are isolating. And when I name these things, I want to be very clear in saying, I'm not talking about an episode, but I'm talking about a chronic experience. So It becomes a consistent pattern. You know, adolescence is known to be a time of ups and downs and strong emotions and, Feelings of sadness, and I'm not worried about even an intense episode of sadness that's followed by seeing evidence of a kid who's right smack dab in the middle of their friends, laughing and enjoying and participating in activities. But I'm talking about a chronic pattern. So, extended episodes of sadness, a kid who was really involved and engaged in extracurricular and relational experience who's pulling away from those, a kid who a kid who would, you know, engage and connect with a family, maybe it wasn't their all-time favorite thing to do. Not, You know, adolescence favorite thing is not going to be to hang out with us. But, you know, the normal connecting and engagement, and all of a sudden it feels almost impossible to engage with. And those are, are, are some of the bigger concerns. And then you all are likely familiar with a pattern of an individual who starts giving away belongings. Um, that is a significant red flag as well. So those are the more classic signs and concerns that we would want to be watching for. I would say the less obvious, and and this is particularly true with boys, but can be true with girls as well, is that depression oftentimes looks less sad and more angry. It looks less lethargic and more irritable. It's like a chronic low-grade irritability. And again, We're looking for consistent patterns because I think any adolescent boy could look kind of irritable in any given moment and that not necessarily be an indicator of depression or suicidal ideation, but it becomes a concerning, consistent pattern. And I say to parents all the time, if you are concerned about a pattern and that concern continues to register with you, I want you to park him or her in front of the pediatrician. I want you to schedule at least a consult- consultation with someone who has a background in child development. If not scheduling an appointment for a child, but you could start with a consultation. I'm such an advocate of if you have questions swimming inside and anything related to your kids, like table those questions. Don't sit in that. And and a part of that, if we were to fast forward into what we know to be true for families who are navigating loss by suicide of a, of a child, one of the most common difficulties in moving forward and traveling through the journey of that is all the what-ifs. what ifs, what ifs, what if? what ifs, uh-huh. what ifs. And so I just, you know, we'll say to parents, just if you've got questions, table those somewhere, Pick up the phone and call the pediatrician, schedule a consultation, take them in for counseling. And, um, I would, I would much rather families err on the side of caution and over-respond than under-respond. So I would say watch for that, uh, anger and irritability in particular. Boys also, generally speaking, there are certainly boys who are exceptions to this rule, will be more bravado when they're struggling more. So boys, girls tend to go inward and get smaller. Boys tend to get bigger. So if he feels more volatile, more angry, more explosive, more venomous, and that becomes an ongoing pattern, that's a red flag to me. That would warrant, let's put some eyes on that and do some digging in
1: Yeah, those are fantastic. And I think we can all use that as a way to guide us and and help us navigate. What about for the parent that would, that would look back and say, you know what, I, I just don't, I don't remember anything. I don't remember any kind of sign or any kind of, of anything that led me to believe that he or she was struggling in any way. They had no clue And maybe afterwards, they just couldn't pinpoint anything, any reason. What would you say to those parents? And and how does that happen? Yeah,
2: I would say a couple of things Um, to that parent. I would say I heard a pastor years ago, actually, in speaking at a service of a young man who had died by suicide, said, what ifs are of the enemy? And he would love to trap you, even bury you in the what-ifs. Um, and, and I remember being so struck by those words and I think the wisdom of those words. So I would say do everything in your power, identify whatever relationship you need to identify to allow you to come out from underneath those what-ifs because I don't think it will ever serve you um, or those you love well. Um, and I would say on, on the tail of that to know that I think doing the work that we need to do is one of the greatest gifts that we can give the kids we love. I I did a talk at one point to parents who had living children who lost a child, and I said, it's one of the greatest gifts you can give because your living children need full access to you. And I think to the degree that kids see evidence of their parents um, just swimming in their own grief, in ways that I think might lead them to a place of thinking, I don't need to come to my parents with my own. I need to try to have as few needs as possible. And knowing that any parent who's listening, who's navigated that horrible unbearable loss of a child would want to be as available to their living children as possible. So I Mm -hmm. think that's what I would say in starting. I think in terms of the second part of, that Actually, remind me of the second part so I make sure I don't miss what you asked. Well, part I of- think
1: the question is just how, how does that happen? How, how can we have a, a child in our home and just miss it sometimes, really miss it? I, I, I want to speak to that in the same vein that you were just in, and that is that we have to let go of the what ifs and the, and the blame um, and, and those kind of things because it does happen that signs slip through our fingers and we don't see them or maybe they weren't there or it wasn't a classic case or those kind of things. So how do we help that parent that says, I just didn't see it.
2: I love your words and you're right. Blame and shame, um, I think are tools of the enemy and none of us are served by them and none of us can serve the people we love with them too. So I think you find whatever resource you need to allow you to come out from underneath that, um, so you can be as present for yourself and others as, as possible, and to know that it can happen in that way. And I think for that individual, of course, it would, they'd be that much more vulnerable to it. And entrapping themselves in a long investigative search of trying to find something that they didn't see as a way of coming to a place of understanding. What I would say to any parent listening who feels fear as they hear that is that You know, what the research also tells us is that 90% of individuals who die by suicide had a diagnosable, even if it was not identified, what we would call brain illness. And so whether that's depression or Mm -hmm. bipolar disorder, or schizophrenia, I could go on. But that's what the data would tell us. And oftentimes it is accompanied by substance abuse as well. So I I didn't mention that earlier, but I sure want to, that... um, it is important to pay very close attention. Again, adolescents are known for experimentation in that arena, and yet that can be a real sign of a kid trying to medicate some pain. And so I, I would—I don't think we can pay close enough attention to substance-related issues for a thousand reasons, but this one in particular. And so I would say to any parent who's listening who is living in fear of that, of what might be happening that I don't, that 90% of the time, <clears throat> the highest percent of the time – we're going to see evidence of something that feels even mildly concerning that I would want parents to hear as a way of not feeling trapped and buried in that sense of, oh, my goodness, is that 50% of the time? Is that 80% of the time? And, and you don't see a single thing. That's the rarest percentage of time that feels important to note.
0: Yeah, we, I mean, one of our most common phrases around here is be a student of your child. And if you're, if you're watching your child and you're, you're knowing how they normally react to things and what, you know, what's, what's a normal emotional outburst and what's more than that or what, you know, those types of things, you're probably going to notice these changes and, and um, there are the, there are the times that things are hidden enough that, that it doesn't, but watching and, and talking and all of that is going to bring more to the surface and, and help avoid that kind of thing. So on that note, can you give our parents listening today some conversation starters? Like, how do we talk about this with our kids? What questions can they use to open dialogue so they can discern if there is a problem?
2: Yes. And Aaron, I want to piggyback on what you just said. And I want to say to any women who are listening right now, I want you to trust that God-given gift of intuition that he has given you as women and as mothers. Like the longer I do this work, I am fascinated by that gift. I can't even tell you the number of stories I have accumulated over the years. I sat with a mom a few weeks ago and she said, David, I sleep like a baby, like nothing can wake me. It's unbelievable. And in the middle of the night, a few weeks ago, three in the morning, I woke up and something said, go to his room. She has a 14 year old son. She was like, this never happens to me. And sure enough, she went up to his room. His window was cracked. He'd snuck out, classic, put the pillows underneath the comforter type deal. And and I just, I looked at her and I'm like, there is no other explanation for that than God's in this gift of intuition that God gives you as women and a thousand other stories of just a knowing. So I want to say the women listening, you trust that knowing. You trust it. And if 10% of the time it's wrong, so be it. 90% of the time it's right. But I just, I think it is. It's extraordinary. And so trust it. And then I would say, with that, um, thinking about, well, let me back up one step and say this, when you asked the question, Brooke, a little bit earlier about the why, one other thing, one other ingredient I'd add to the list of why is that, you know, in this accelerated world that we're raising kids right now, where we have you know amped up the academic expectations amped up the athletic expectations so many different parts of our kids life i don't think it's ever been harder for families to just find time to sit around the dinner table and just look at each other and i believe that is one of the most important ingredients to kids developing both emotionally socially and spiritually and so to have time where we're just sitting around the table and doing nothing more than checking in on our day parents listening, do not dismiss the significance of that. And I think it's one of the best times, Aaron, back to your question, where we can get our thumb on the pulse of where our kids are, where we can be a student. And listening for what's being shared and listening for what's not being shared. And again, moms, trust your intuition. I can't tell you how many moms I'll say, I'm listening to him answer questions. And I'm thinking, that's not the whole story. And I'm like, good for you. Chase after that. And so I would say start there with just the everyday. And a part of what I would add to that is The very first chapter of our book, Are My Kids on Track, is how important, right out of the gate, we talk about how important it is that kids develop an emotional vocabulary. And what that means even deeper is figuring out how to articulate their experience in life, which I believe is one of the most foundational gifts that we can give our children and one of the ones that I'm seeing missing more than ever. Like kids who just can't talk about their experience, like I had a hard day, here's what happened. And again, as as they get closer to adolescent, kids are gonna struggle more with articulating their experience. So we wanna, to any parents listening who have preschool and elementary age children, be all about that practice of just laying a good solid foundation, helping kids develop an emotional vocabulary and just talk about their experience in life. And even listening, the question asking back and forth that happens in that time, checking in on each other. And so all of that shared to say that sounds so simple, but it is so significant, and I think that's where it starts. And then with a kid that I felt like was struggling, I'd go even deeper. And I'm, you all can tell I do a lot of work with boys, and so I talk a lot about how important it is to take a very direct approach with boys. We do a whole lot of dancing around, beating around the bush, and boys just get lost in <laughs> that, lost in the information, lost in the questions. So I'm more than fine for parents to say, you know what? I might be off, but I kind of have an alarm going off inside of me that says, I think more is going on in your life right now. Am I right or am I wrong? You know, I think going after it when you have a real strong sense is really important. I also talk a lot about engaging kids at bedtime because their emotional defenses are down. And so we get kind of a raw, pure version of them. And sometimes in the dark, I can't tell you how many moms I've heard of boys of all ages will say, I go into his room and I'm just scratching his back and talking about the day. And it's amazing what came pouring out. Mm -hmm. Bedtime and food. That's the other thing. There's a lot. You all heard me say before there's wisdom. (laughs) That age old saying of the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. And I hear moms of teenage boys say all the time, it's shocking to me what comes out when I feed him queso. And I'm like, good, keep feeding him queso, whatever the magic (laughs) ingredients is for your particular son. It's fascinating how much boys will talk around food as well, where you can start to get a little more access to what's going on. I would also say to parents, I'm a huge advocate. You all know this of as they get technology, access to technology, reading their history and being very open about that. Don't sneak around behind their backs, but you know, treat it like driving a car. You know, the 15th year of life in our country before a kid can get their license, they've got to spend a year in the car with a parent, an adult who's a seasoned driver. And so it's like, I'm going to be with you giving you feedback, helping you know when you turn too quick, didn't pump the brakes fast enough, whatever it may be. I'm going to do the same with technology. I'm going to check your history. I'm going to look at your text. If I find out you're using it inappropriately it comes back to me, but I've had so many parents. I sat with parents last night of a sixth grade son and the mom said, I read his text history and it makes so much sense to me why he has looked so disheartened lately in our home. She goes, I was reading the text exchange amongst his peers and it's profane and it's, um, Degrading, she used like four different words that were an example of just 95% of the conversations he's having aren't life giving in any way. And, and in, you all, I think it's the equivalent of think what happens to any one of us if I just sit around the house and feed myself Dr. Pepper and gummy bears. You know, I'm gonna feel sick. And it's like, if that's all that's coming into my system, and that's all relationally that was coming into this kid's system. And he, he started to show the effects of that emotionally and physically.
0: Yeah. Okay, so let me ask a follow-up then. You notice something's wrong. You want to talk to your kid. What do you say? Like, what question – like, I'm thinking of the mom that's listening right now that's like, I see all these warning, songs, but how, warning signs, but how, what do I say? Like, what's a simple question to start with? How would you word it? Like, let's get, like, really practical right now.
2: I love the whole highs and lows, roses and thorns barometers that we use around the dinner table. And I think that's a really great place to start. And then I think you can go way more specific, like who are the two friends in your life right now, who you feel like are in your corner who are two of the hardest people to love right now? What are two things you feel hopeful and are excited about? What are two things you feel overwhelmed about? And so you see how those kind of questions are opening up, opening up a lot of space about where kids feel competent and confident and where they're really struggling. And then to the degree that they're answering that second part, I just keep pulling that thread and following that and following that and then use that as what you follow up with as well. Hey, two nights ago and we we're sitting around the dinner table and you we are talking about feeling overwhelmed by this. Tell me more about that. Tell me more three great words for every parent listening to adopt. I don't think we can say that too much and just, Again, that's a pulling of the thread at this point and watch for if boys get stuck and roadblock in the conversation, you all know, I believe strongly in talking around a task. And so if you, if you notice he's getting kind of roadblocked, I'd say, Hey, you go with me to walk the dog. He always goes farther when you're with me than he does. Or if he's outside shooting hoops, go outside and retrieve the ball. Watch for where you can talk around a task and they'll open up a lot more in those moments. Sometimes too, I can feel really threatening for a lot of boys. And so I would watch for where he seems roadblocked in that way.
1: Yeah, that's good. So for the family that is listening right now, David, who has already experienced this, and we do have the holidays approaching, how do we help them navigate that? How do we help them navigate the empty seat at the table and -hmm. and just honoring that, but also in probably some real ways wanting to pretend like it's not there?
2: Yes, I would say a couple of things. I would say, go back to the wisdom of those words that grief is a process, it's not an event. And I think giving yourself, giving the people you love plenty of space to feel confused, to feel angry, to feel sad, all of those things. And there's not a timeline for that. I think we assign a timeline to ourselves and others at times, and there's just not. Every person is gonna move through grief in their own way. I would say that we know this is not just suspicion, but this is a well-researched truth that remembering is a powerful force. And so I think give the people you love a lot of space to remember, tell stories, even if it triggers a lot of emotion. I think the assumption so many individuals make is if I invite them to remember, they get really sad. I feel like I've hurt them more than help them. And no, you haven't. Remembering is a powerful tool in giving space for that. Um, I would also say to any person lifting, listening that as you think about the kids around you and the adolescents around you, what the research also tells us that kids take their cues from the grown-ups around them and they are capable of navigating any loss. They are capable of dealing with anything in life as long as they have trusted adults around them. And so when we're doing that remembering, when we're doing that active grieving in front of them, we're giving them a gift. We're showing them that. Emotions reside in the life of adult and this is what it looks like to grieve and remember a person that you loved. And I have found my experience would say and I don't think you all will be surprised to hear me say this that when it's a death by suicide, we talk less and we give less space to remember. And I think it just clouds the experience in shame and blame again in, in ways that are so dishonoring to the person we've lost and dishonoring to the family we love. And so I would be even more intentional in those moments of remembering.
0: Okay. That's, that's really powerful and helpful for these upcoming holidays and really for any time you're dealing with grief. So thank you for that. The focus of our ministry here at Million Praying Moms is to help parents make prayer their first and best response to the challenges of parenting. So can you list a few things that you think moms need to be praying about um, for this subject or Bible verses that come to mind that would be um, something that they could be praying and holding on to in the middle of either thinking you might be dealing with this or Hoping to, you know, praying to prevent it and be aware, or on the other side for grief?
2: I would say to any parent listening, pray, and this is even kind of back to our conversation about mother's intuition. I think there is such wisdom in praying that God would reveal to you what you need to see, and that He would reveal it in the time you need to see it, and to really trust that we serve a God of revelation and to believe that he will. Um, But I think there is something so wise about that. I even have parents I work with, I love this, who tell their children that. Like, I want you to know, I pray that God throughout your life will show me what I need to see. I have an adolescent boy who's doing a lot of experimenting with substances and his mom says that with regularity. And doggone it, if she doesn't catch him every single time. (laughs) And I love that. I love, one, I love that he's getting caught so he can't go any deeper than that. But I love that he sees the spiritual connection of that too. My mother is consistently praying, not because she wants to be a policeman in my life, but because she loves me that much. And that we would, you know, raise kids with a sense of that we're that loved by God that will be found out. So I would say pray for those things. And then I think too, back to the finding a resource, pray that God would lead you to the right resources and believe that he will as well. God, show me the right resources. Um, Prompt me if I need to reach out to a pediatrician, prompt me if I need to find a counselor, all of those things. But to any parent listening, if you don't hear me say anything else, if in doubt, engage a resource, engage. Your re- I'd rather you over respond than under respond. I'll even say to you both. Um, our policy and our practice is with kids who have suicidal ideation and a plan a hundred percent of the time we are directing parents to take them to get help. hundred percent of the time. We even have parents who leave our offices and go straight to the hospital knowing that some of those kids are just being manipulative, knowing that. And I believe even those kids are served by going through the process. I believe, one, it halts the manipulation. But more importantly, I believe it sends a really strong message of, I'm not going to guess in that area. I'm not going to assume you might be being manipulative when you you really aren't. Whatever the circumstances may be, if I hear those words from your mouth, I'm going to act on it. You are that loved. If I have any concern that that's taking place at this point, I'm going to err on the side of caution. And I think there's something so loving about that approach.
1: We love that. Thank you, David, again, so much for being willing to tackle a tough subject with us. Um, We've always found your wisdom in the midst of those hard things to be so important. Um, We want to thank you for being with us again today. And before we wrap things up, we'd love for you to take just a second and tell anyone who's listening where they can find more about you and uh, follow more of the work that you're doing.
2: Thank you. Thank you. You could find everything I'm doing at RaisingBoysAndGirls.com. It will uh, connect you to our resources. It will connect you straight to Daystar. If you're listening and thinking, I want to do a parent consultation, it'll connect you to our speaking events. If you want to check and see if we're coming to your city, it'll connect you to our socials, all those things. That's a great place to find anything we're doing.
0: Thank you so much again, and we are honored to have you as a guest, and we know we'll have you back again. So
2: I'm that's, honored to be a guest, and any chance to talk with the two of you is a win for me.
0: We feel exactly the same, so thank you. And that's it for today, friends. As always, you can find any specifics from our show in our show notes at millionprayingmoms.com, including links to some of our favorite David Thomas books. Tune in next week for our Christmas prayer on the Million Praying Moms podcast.